And looking what the young people went over with our pastor a few days back, that just kind of crossed with some of the reading I was doing in Deuteronomy. Can somebody who was there tell me what was something that you guys went over? Our one another duties. Excellent. Our duties that we have, one to another. Now, we've talked about that before. I'm not going to go back over that material. What I'd like us to do, though, is go into the Old Testament and look at an example of where one another duties were not done and take it as a challenge to us, especially to young people. But all of us can look at it. I'd like us to look at peer pressure and how it can be bad for us. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy. It's the fifth of the five books of Moses. To me, it's one of the most interesting. It's one of the most pitiful books in Scripture. It's basically Moses going back over the history of the people to the new generation. The old generation has died. All of his contemporaries, except for two, are dead of the male population. It's the new generation that's about to go into the land, and they're on the verge of the land that Moses himself will not be able to enter. There's a border that Moses himself couldn't cross. But he's doing his last faithful act of telling the history that they probably well knew. But now they're mature. Now they're adults. Now the burden of continuing on the nation is theirs. And so he's going back over the mistakes of their parents. Going over the commandments God gave their parents before they go into the land. Starting at verse 19, what I want to do is just read through, comment on a section or two of of the passage, read on, and at the very end, make just a few points. Deuteronomy 1, starting at verse 19. And when they departed from Horeb, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which ye saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said unto you, Ye are come unto the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord our God doth give unto us. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath said unto thee. Fear not, neither be discouraged. Now this is the background. These are his initial instructions when they came to the land. God's given it to us. Let's go and take it. Verse 22. And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search us out the land, and bring us word again by what way we must go up, and into what cities we shall come. And the saying pleased me well. And I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe, Now, if you go back over to Numbers chapter 13, it's always good to compare Scripture. 
It's always good. There's all sorts of things you can learn by looking at different accounts. Because if you go to Numbers 13, it tells us that God gave this commandment to pick out men. Okay, now here Moses says that you, the people, came to me. The other one says the Lord did it. Which is it? Do we have a contradiction in Scripture? Of course not. The, what I take from this is that God, knowing the weakness of the people, said, okay, Moses, get some folks to go in to look at the land so they can see. I've told them it's a good land. Let their own contemporaries tell them it's good. And the people agreed to it. When the Lord gave that order, the people said, oh, hey, that's a good idea. We should have thought about that. They were anxious. They were ready to go into this new land. But they were careful. They weren't sure what it was because it was new. They didn't know what was over there. So God actually commanded Moses to do this. The people agreed. Another thing, if you go over, he doesn't list it here, but if you go back over to the numbers account, what kind of men were they they chose? They chose out one from every tribe. What kind of guys were they? They were heads. They were rulers. They were princes. They were the mighty men of each tribe. These weren't just sluggards. These weren't just, you know, average Joes. These were the cream of the crop that they chose. Every one of them, it says, was a ruler in Israel and a ruler in their tribe. Caleb was one of the ones chosen. And Caleb was a ruler in Judah. He was a man of importance. Joshua was in there. Joshua had already become a man of importance in the tribe of Ephraim. And you could go down the list of all those men. They were men of renown. They were leaders who were doing this task. Hand-picked rulers. Verse 24. And they turned and went up into the mountain. And came into the valley of Eschol and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down unto us. And brought us word again and said, It is a good land which the Lord our God doth give us. Again, you go back and look at Numbers 13, 25. It tells us this wasn't just a, a little, you know, loitering in, into the land and back out. You know, like a six hour journey in and out. They spent 40 days. They searched out the land. They looked it up from the top to the bottom, so they knew exactly what was in there. And when he talks about this fruit that they brought back from the Valley of Eschol, can somebody remember what that was? Grapes. Some grapes, right. Grapes. So you had had a guy carrying a a lump of grapes, right? It was one thing of grapes, but they had to have a pole between two of these mighty men to bring it back. Evidence of how fruitful and bountiful the land was. I mean, it impressed them. And they wanted to bring it back to show, yes, this is a fruitful land. You know, when it talks about a land flowing with milk and honey, that's figurative speech, right? They didn't really have rivers that had, you know, the you had the honey river over here and the milk river over there, right? That's a figure of speech, meaning that it's, In agricultural terms, if your land is flowing with milk and honey, it's an abundant land. You've got all sorts of cultivated resources. That's your milk. 
And you've got all sorts of natural resources. That's honey. Right? So it's a bountiful land. It's a rich land for an agricultural people. Notwithstanding, verse 26, ye would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. Now, if you read on, or if you're familiar with the passage, you know they didn't just arbitrarily choose to do this. The spies that had been chosen to go in, when they came back, they gave word. Oh, yes, it's a land of milk and honey. Oh, yes, it's got all sorts of wonderful resources for us. But you ought to see the people that are there. They've got cities that are walled up to heaven. They're mighty warriors in there like the Anakins. They're giants in the land. (laughs) We can't stand before them. Now think about it. The spies were given a task. They were to go in to do what? To confirm the word of the Lord that it was a good land, right? And to let everyone know, here's going to be our trouble spots and here's where we need to look out for. But think about it. Were they new to the Lord? I mean, had the Lord never done anything good for them in the past? I mean, the Lord had already proven in Egypt that he was a a God of his word, hadn't he? He predicted all the way that he was going to totally destroy that nation. And again, let's think, what kind of nation was Egypt at that time? We know what it is now. But at that time, what was Egypt? Egypt was the U.S. of A. It was the superpower of its day. These folks over in Canaan, they were second-rate powers compared to Egypt. They were nothing compared to Egypt. And what did God do with the mightiest army of that day in that part of the world? They got to watch as the bodies floated up. They went through dry shod, and the Egyptians were floating all around after God got done with them. So see, the na- the, what should the nation have done when they heard that report from the spies? Oh, it's a great land, but we've got all these problems. Based on their experience, they should have said, well, great, it's a great land. The Lord said he was going to give us a great land. That's what it is. Let's go take it. At worst, they should, you know, at least they should have just ignored anything negative. The Ashes should have taken them out and dealt with them for trying to question the Lord. But what did they do? Verse 27. And ye murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Excuse me? After all the effort and time he took bringing you out of Egypt, did they just come out of Egypt with the clothes off their back? After all, they were slaves, right? What happened before they left Egypt? They spoiled them. They had every Egyptian who could find an Israelite coming up to them with their family treasures, saying, here, please take this. I've got more. I'm more at home. Please take it. Just go. Leave. Get out of here. They had, they probably had problem. That's one of the reasons they probably moved so slow. Not only did they have children, but they had all this treasure, all this booty from the land of Egypt that was piled on them to get out of there. 
Does that sound like God wanted to get rid of them? I mean, they ate manna in the wilderness, something no people before or since have ever had. Just food appearing miraculously out there for them. They could find places where there were no oases, where there was no water. And Moses could walk up to a rock that God pointed out, take his rod, hit it, and out gushed forth rivers of water. Does that sound like a being that wants their harm? But they murmured. Oh, God's just trying to destroy us. And notice how it describes it. You murmured in your tents. They didn't come up to the Lord and say, Lord, you're trying to kill us. They were hiding in the back. I hope you understand, brethren, why the Lord hates things like murmuring, why the Lord hates things like evil surmisings. He's had them done against him when he's done nothing but good to people. Verse 28, whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people is greater and they're and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakins there. This was all the testimony of their leaders. The best in a nation. That's what discouraged them. Ten men. Estimates are that there were roughly one to three million Israelites at this time. Ten men discouraged the whole nation. Out of those twelve men, there were two. That as soon as they heard that, it was like, where are you guys coming from? It's a great land. Joshua and Caleb right away jumped in and said, wait a minute. It's a good land. And the Lord's taking care of us. Oh, they don't have any defenses over there. They're going to be bread for us. Let's go in there and take it right now. If God says we can do it, we can do it. So see, they had the testimony of two mighty men in the kingdom. But they listened to the other ten. You get two noble, godly, faithful men standing against the ten. And the nation picks the ten. They pick the majority. But isn't that the smart thing to do, folks? Always pick the majority? This is an example of why you don't want to pick a majority. Most majorities are wrong. I mean, what did God say about the things that are highly esteemed among men? He hates them. Over in Luke 16, 15. He specifically told in Exodus 30, 23, 2, do not follow a multitude to do evil. Right. Majorities, folks, if you haven't figured it out by now, and young people, I'm speaking to you, if you haven't figured it out by now, most majorities are stupid. And I'm being polite. Most of them are wicked. As well as being foolish and stupid. You don't want to follow the majority. Verse 29. Then I said unto you, dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Again, this was something they'd seen. This wasn't, they weren't like us having to read an account and think, could this be true or not? They saw it. It was, they, they were standing right there when the Egyptian was about to walk up and boom, he got taken out. 
They were standing right there at night and seeing this pillar of fire between them and the army of the Egyptians. They stepped across the border out of the river, out of the riverbed with the water on either side and turned around in time to see Pharaoh's toes coming through as the waters closed on top of them and washed them all away. And in the wilderness, where thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bear thee as a man doth his son, doth bear his son in all the way that you went until you came into this place. Moses reminded them how that the Lord had delivered them from Egypt, the greatest empire of their day. The Lord had been faithful, tenderly caring for them. You know, one of the passages points out that there was a more direct route to go up to the promised land than they took. But the Lord didn't take them there because they'd have gone right in the middle of a bunch of warlike people at that time that they weren't ready for. So the Lord took them away a different way where nobody was going to be. And he protected them and cared for them while they were in that inhospitable country. The conclusion was that of a believing logic. You know, if you heard what Moses said and you'd seen all that stuff, the conclusion of believing logic would have been that, well, obviously, the Lord's going to take care of us. We're going to take this land. Not a problem. Verse 32, yet in this thing, you did not believe the Lord, your God, who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night, to show you by what way you should go, and in a cloud by day. Again, talking about the wilderness. They didn't have to worry about flashlights, torches, if they had to travel at night. They had this big cloud that turned into fire at night. Now, not only does that give you a good way to travel, right? You can see everything. Tell me, how many of you, if you saw a giant cloud of fire, would go running up to look at it? You'd get as far away as you could, right? Well, same thing with any potential enemies. They were nowhere to be found when the children of Israel were traveling. God protected them. The Lord's presence had been with them directly. He was visible, guiding and protecting them as they went. He'd given them his word. He promised, there's a good land, I'm taking you to it. Since the Lord magnifies his word above his name. Psalm 138 and verse 2. Remember that passage, some of you? The Lord magnifies his word above his name. What's it called when you take the name of the Lord God in vain? That's blasphemy, right? That's an awful sin. Well, you know what? God takes his word and his testimony, his word, higher than his name. How much more wicked is it to question his word? Isn't that a more heinous unbelief? To question God's word, especially when you've seen it being proven true time and again. This that they were doing was a direct personal rebellion against the word and integrity of Jehovah. Verse 34. And the Lord heard the voice of your words and was wroth and swear, saying, surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation See that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers. Now, 
Again, go back to Numbers 14, and it tells us that the people murmured against Moses and Aaron and the Lord. Why is that important? Well, you know, when you stand for the Lord, I'm talking about you and me. When we stand for the Lord, we're going to have people in the church that are going to want to stand against us and murmur against us. You say, Newell, why do you say a church? If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, first 12 verses, it'll tell you, actually the first four verses will tell you that the very people we're talking about, the people that were brought out of Egypt to go into the land and who refused and who their carcasses dropped in the desert, they were us. They were blood-washed children of God who disobeyed. Who didn't believe God's promises. And they're given to us for an example. So that we shouldn't do the same things that they did. You know, the Lord had been merciful previously. He tells us in Numbers 14, verse 22, that they had murmured before this instance nine times against the Lord. And he's forgiven it. He'd overlooked it. He didn't bring it up to them. This tenth time, he drew a line. This time, he said, you've crossed the border. And practically speaking, his mercy ceased. Brethren, the Bible tells us the Lord is long-suffering. Long-suffering does not mean forever suffering. The Lord can draw a line. He can be merciful to you as long as he wants to be. But he can get tired. And he can draw a line and say, well, that's it. No more. And your carcass is going to drop in whatever desert he leaves you in. Verse 36. Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, talking about the land. And to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. It's interesting, again, go back to the Numbers passage. It tells us the other ten that were there. You had twelve spies. Joshua and Caleb were part of them. And then there's the other ten. Those ten, right after the Lord finished speaking, dropped dead of a plague. Right there in the spot. And then the Lord swore that none of the rest of the men of that generation were going to see that blessed land he promised them. But look at this wonderful, direct vindication of Caleb before the whole nation. I mean, the Lord right there says, all of you are going to, you know, you've had it. I've had it with you. You're all going to, your carcass is going to drop in the desert. These ten, they're dead now. But Caleb, you've wholly followed me. You're not just going to see the land. You're going to have every piece of, of the land that your feet walked on and your children are going to inherit it. What a wonderful vindication of a godly man, of a faithful man. Brethren, the Lord always takes care of those that believe and obey his word. As you look at that, the way you need to look at it is, I want to be Caleb. I want to follow whatever the Lord says. I want to do whatever he tells me to do. I want to, I'll believe everything he tells me because I know he's going to bless me. 
Verse 37. Also the Lord was angry with me for your sake, saying, Thou also shalt not go in thither. This is Moses speaking, remember. It's not germane for our topic tonight. We won't cover it. But I'll refer you to Numbers 20. Because that's where Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And why did he do it? Because of the people. They're out murmuring again. Who can God provide us water in the desert? (laughs) And I mean, he must have thought, yeah, he's only done it 15 times before now. You don't think he can do it now, huh? He goes up to the Lord. The Lord says, Moses, it's time. I want you to take the rod, but speak to the rock. And Moses goes up to the rock and says, must we get water out of this rock for you rebels? And he hits the rock and the water comes out. But right away, the Lord says, Moses, what have you done? You're not going in the land. You didn't sanctify me for the people. A godly man like Moses let the people get him upset and it cost him. Peer pressure, brethren, is a dangerous thing. Watch out for it. Watch out for your spirit. Verse 38, but Joshua, the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, He was Moses' personal servant for many years as a young man. He shall go in thither. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. The Lord was telling Moses, Moses, you're not going in, but your right-hand man, Joshua, he's a good man. He's going to lead the people in. You be sure and encourage him, because he's going to need it. And if anybody knew how much he needed, it was Moses. Joshua had been that faithful assistant. Again, go back and look him up. As a young man, he was there serving the Lord under Moses. He was the one who led the armies when they went out against one of their enemies one time. Joshua with Caleb had brought a good report of the land. And again, I don't have time to go over it, but go back and read the account in Numbers 13 and 14. They were out there preaching to him. We can go in and take this land. And the people said, shut up. We don't want to hear it. Let's stone him. He was more concerned with God's truth than his own life. But you know what, brethren? This shows us something. Even bold, godly, faithful men like a Joshua, they need encouragement at times. Even those who have the strength to stand up under peer pressure, they need some help. It doesn't hurt to try to encourage them. Verse 39. Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither. And unto them will I give it, meaning the land, and they shall possess it. Don't you love the irony of Scripture? Part of their complaint was, oh, if we were to go in... Us men, we're going to die in the process. And then the the people of the land are going to take our wives and our children. And the Lord says, okay, you don't think I could beat those folks up? Well, tell you what. I'll parade you around the wilderness for a few years so you all drop dead. And then I'll let your little ones, your kiddies, they'll grow up and they'll take the land in your place. I love the irony of the Lord. But as for you, turn you. Take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. God's decision was final. That generation was not going to inherit the promised land. 
As I pointed out, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, tells us that they were us. They ate of that spiritual meat and drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ, it says. They were children of God. But the Lord was not pleased with them. He tells us that they were an example that we shouldn't be carnal. That we shouldn't doubt. That we shouldn't murmur. Those are at least three of the things. If you go read 1 Corinthians 10, it'll tell us, you, t- Paul tells us that it teaches us. They were commanded to go back in the wilderness, where, as I've already said, they were to wander until their carcasses dropped. Verse 41. Then ye answered and said unto me, Oh, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight according to all that the Lord our God commanded us. And when ye had girded on every man his weapons of war, ye were ready to go up into the hill. Brethren, isn't it funny how perverse man's nature is? Marianne and I were talking about little Timothy tonight. That, you know, he likes to, he likes to, when there's something that you say you shouldn't go there, what does he want to do? He wants to walk right up to the edge and look over the edge. Those of us that are older, that have had kids, haven't we seen it? Can't we remember it? All it would take is for daddy or mommy or teacher or somebody to say, no, don't go there. And that's the first place we want to go. That's perverse human nature. The thing that's denied is the thing we've got to have. The Lord says it's a land, you can have it. Oh, no, it's dangerous. We can't have it. No, you can't go in there now. Oh, but we've got to have it now. People at this point presumed on God's mercy and forgiveness. Brethren, that's a very dangerous place to be. You don't know if the Lord is speaking to you right now that you ought to forsake something. You do not know that you'll get another opportunity. If you have an opportunity right now to repent, take advantage of it because he doesn't owe it to you. He doesn't owe you this one, much less another one. And if you just presumptuously continue on in something, well, he's been merciful to me in the past. He's going to be merciful to me now. Yeah, I think your water's just ready to be cut off. That's what some of the phrase we like to use. You know, you're about to be in a place where there's no remedy. As a child of God, but quite frankly, if that's your attitude, I, I don't know if you're a child of God or not. You're not showing the evidence of it because a child of God wants to hear God's word and obey it. He doesn't want to flippantly disobey it and say, well, I can repent. God's merciful. I can repent any time. They ignored God's clear command. God's clear command was turn around, go back into the wilderness. And they proceeded to do exactly what God had forbidden them. So, verse 42, And the Lord said unto me, Say unto them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not with you, among you. Lest ye be smitten before your enemies. See, God is so kind. Even though he's forbidden them to go in, he still wants to warn them about it. That's how good God is. Even when you're doing something absolutely crazy, stupid, he'll warn you sometimes even though he's going to let the hammer fall on you. So I spake unto you, 
and ye would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and went up presumptuously into the hill. And the Amorites, which dwelt in the mountain, came out against you, and chased you, as bees do, and destroyed you in Seir, even into Hormoth. And ye returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord would not hearken to your voice, nor give ear unto you. So ye abode in Kadesh many days according unto the days that ye abode there. Moses warned the people. They ignored his instructions. The one faithful man who had led them out of Egypt. Right? Their savior, their deliverer from bondage. They ignored him. You know, men in rebellion against God have short memories, don't they? They can forget real quick just how merciful and kind God is. They can forget even quicker that he's a God of judgment. Men in rebellion against God always think they know better than God's ministers, don't they? I know a better way than that. Yeah. The Lord will severely chasten his children who willfully walk contrary to his instructions. So, I'm out of time. Let me give you some quick lessons from this. Men in groups are a lot like sheep. They're skittish, easy to be swayed, and easy to panic. And the bigger the group, the more so. Brethren, another point, we must work to create and maintain a peaceful and godly church fellowship. Don't look at these people as a bunch of pagans, a bunch of ignoramuses. No, look at them as the church of Greenville. Because they were that before we were. They were the church. Don't think it can't happen here. It can. If you don't think it can happen, please let me know so I can pray that God changes your mind. Because if you think that long enough, it will happen here. Brethren, there's always a price to pay for both obedience and disobedience. Joshua and Caleb came that close to getting stoned. They weren't, but they came right up to the edge before the Lord delivered them. There's a price to be paid if you're going to be obedient. But what's the price for disobedience? Brethren, God is always right. We disobey his instructions to our peril. You don't want to have him say, I'm not with you. I'm not going to go with you. I want you over there outside of my blessed place. Because I am not going to bring you in. Brethren, don't follow the crowd. Follow that minority of men who are walking in the paths of the Lord. Because that's where safety is. Another thing to think about is even bold, godly men, I said it once before, but it's a thing worth repeating, like Joshua, need encouragement. If you've got a good heart and you see somebody else who's got a good heart, don't just think, well, the Lord's given them strength. They can get through anything. Encourage them. 
Because they're no different than you. They're a man or a woman just like you. Encourage their hearts. And that my final point is we each are ultimately accountable for our actions. Even though it was the entire congregation and most of them went wrong, God held each and every one accountable for their decision to go with the minority or the majority. Those who went with the minority, well, there was two of them. There was two men who stood up in front of the nation and said, we don't care what you think. We're wanting to do what God wants to do. I don't care about all the other noble men on my left-hand side here that went in the land with me. They're idiots if they're not following God. Those two men made it in. One led the nation. The other got his choice of the prime territory for his family and his descendants. Peer pressure. Will you allow it to be a curse? Or will you help to make it a blessing? Think about what you can do in this congregation to be an influence for good and righteousness on others. That's the point we want to take from this. Learn what they did wrong and do what we ought to do to make this a continued place of peace, prosperity, and blessing from the Lord. May the Lord bless us to that end. Please stand with me. Our most gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for your tender mercies in that you have revealed these things to us from your word. Lord, help us that we might be Joshua's, that we might be Caleb's in our lives, Father, in this congregation. Dismiss us now with thy blessing, Father, and grant that if you tarry your coming, Lord, that we might show forth the praises of Jesus Christ in our love and compassion, works of love and compassion towards one another in this coming week. For we ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>